and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett, and I'm joined today by a special co-host, Jack Butler. You might know Jack as the other guy on Jonah Goldberg's podcast, The Remnant, or as one of the co-hosts of the Ricochet podcast, The Young Americans. Excuse me, I'm not a co-host. That is my podcast. Sorry. Or just as that guy you see running around Washington, D.C. at weird hours of the day. More likely than not, you just don't know him at all. <laughs> Regardless, Jack, thank you for stepping in for match today. Uh, you're welcome. I don't know. Uh, what what size shoe is Max? Do you know that offhand? I, we're not that close. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm a size 12, so I'm not sure. I, his, it may be that my I, my feet are too big for his shoes, but either way, it's I know it's a metaphor. So what, either, whatever the case may be, I'm happy to be here, and I'm honored to be asked to fill Max's metaphorical, not physical shoes. All right. We have a very special show for you all today. Our guest is George F. Will, or the George Will, as he is referred to on that one episode of Seinfeld. You probably Wait, already really? Know. Yeah, he's actually mentioned twice on Seinfeld. I want to say. Wow, that's like the '90s equivalent of William F. Buckley getting it, being in all those Woody Allen movies. Yeah, Kramer at one point says, "You know who's a handsome man? George Will." Well, yes. mm, do we deny it? We do not deny. It. <laughs> anyway, you probably already know who George is, but Dr. Will is the author of several books, including Statecraft, the Soulcraft, and Men at Work. He's been a columnist at the Washington Post since 1974, winning the Pulitzer Prize for Commentary in 1977, and he also holds a PhD in political philosophy from Princeton University. In short, he's arguably the most influential conservative writer alive today, and he joined us on this episode to discuss his new book, The Conservative Sensibility. So without further ado, here's George. Mr. Will, thank you for coming on Banter today. Glad to be with you. So we've now had the conservative mind, the conscious of a conservative, the neoconservative persuasion, the conservative heart, the conscious of a conservative again, and now your new book, The Conservative Sensibility. So two questions. One, why sensibility? Why'd you choose that word? And how do you see your book in relation to all these previous ones? Sensibility because sensibility is more than an attitude, but less than an agenda. I'm not writing a uh, contract for America for conservatives. It's not a Washington book in any sense. Mm. It is about the ideas. It's intellectual archaeology to begin with, to excavate the foundations of the republic and to explain why many of our discontents today derive from deviations from what the founders recommended. I like to think it's in the tradition of our actually rather bookish conservative movement. When it began to gain intellectual momentum after the Second World War, it began with a book called Ideas Have Consequences by uh, Professor Weaver at the University of Chicago. Uh, it's been bookish ever since, and not just in this country. Uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher famously, when she'd been elected chairman of the, or leader of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, but before she became prime minister, was in a meeting with her members, and one of them was up nattering on and on about the beauties of centrism and irritating her mightily. So she reached into her famous handbag, pulled out a copy of Hayek's Constitution of Liberty, a great thumping volume, slammed it down on the table and said, this is what we believe. My dream is that someday a Republican president will do the same thing with the conservative sensibility. Okay, so in, in, there's a lot of talk about the founding in this book, especially at the beginning, but really sprinkled throughout. And one of your assertions about the founding is that the founders were particularly Locke-influenced. And for a long time, I assumed the same thing. Uh, but if you, for example, search the founders' correspondence on the National Archives, where most of it is... Uh, in digital form now, he's actually not mentioned that much. Um, but obviously, the government that they designed bears a heavy imprint of his philosophy and that of Montesquieu. So how do you how do you explain the fact that he doesn't seem his 
his uh, conscious influence doesn't seem that apparent, but his implicit influence seems somewhat obvious. I think he was part of the intellectual atmosphere, and he was the common sense of the times. In much the same way that Jefferson says he didn't do anything new at all in the Declaration of Independence. And if you look back, and I've got in my book uh, ample evidence of this, at what the, the various resolves passed by uh, town meetings in New England and, and the rest, uh, he was right. This was so much the vocabulary of the time that they didn't associate it with anyone in particular. And I think Locke, in that sense, was so much part of the intellectual apparatus of these figures of the 18th century Enlightenment that they didn't need to footnote him. They didn't need to say, I got this idea from Locke's second treatise. They got it from a large cohort of people influenced by Locke. So you're less uh, keen on uh, establishing a continuity between uh, English conservatism such as it is and American conservatism? In the phrase American conservatism, the adjective does a lot of work. It first distinguishes us from continental conservatism, thrown an altar, blood and soil, semi-tribal nationalisms. That conservatism was invented to buttress an existing hierarchical society. Then along came Burke, who's the transatlantic link here. Burke, in mad recoil against the French Revolution, uh, celebrated something that came to be known on when it finally reached our shores over here with the help of Hayek and others. Burke was celebrating the organic, spontaneous order of society. Burke didn't go as far as American conservatives have done. What American conservatives want to do is reconcile people to perpetual change, to explain to people the exhilaration of a society of constant churning, of upward mobility, a society that is content with the fact that very few things last, but that's all right because the future, having an unknown, uncontrolled future is the thrill of being an American. So did you see Andrew Sullivan reviewed your book in the New York Times, and he mentions your celebration of capitalism and the Thomas Paine quote, we have it in our power to begin the world over. And I think Sullivan writes, this is one of the least conservative things I've ever heard. Ronald Reagan was inordinately fond of that quote, and I told Reagan himself that it was the least conservative thing. I, I try to rehabilitate it in my, in my book by giving a, a less radical spin to it. So, yeah, some people like Hayek also will draw the distinction between the British Enlightenment and the French Enlightenment. Do you, is American conservatism, do you link that to the English Enlightenment, or is it its own separate link? No, I do link it to the English Enlightenment, to what Gertrude Himmelfarb has written about at length, distinguishing the two Enlightenments. In terms of the pedigree of our various Enlightenments, the English Channel is very wide. It's been a while since I've read The Conservative Mind, but I, I, if I remember correctly, Kirk describes Hamilton as a Tory without a king. He says Hobbes and Humor's teachers. Do you think Hamilton fits into the Lockean tradition? I do. I, I think that when Hamilton and Jefferson argued, they were ostensibly arguing about banks and public finance and other institutional matters, but they were really arguing about what kind of people we would be. I once wrote a book read by dozens called Statecraft to Soulcraft, based on the Godkin lectures I gave at Harvard in 1981, in which I argued the subtitle of the book was What Government Does. That is, government cannot help. It will either do it consciously or unconsciously, but whatever government does, it cannot help but shape the souls of the citizenry. 
And when Hamilton and Jefferson argued, Jefferson said, I want a society dominated by sturdy, independent yeomen, thinly scattered across the country, and large partly because I seized the opportunity for the Louisiana Purchase, so thinly spread across this country that people would not hear the acts of their neighbor or see their neighbors smoke from their chimney. And they would be very much like Thomas Jefferson. Along came Hamilton and said, not a bit of it. I want restless, churning, entrepreneurial, aspiring people, rather like young Alexander Hamilton. Jefferson won the language of America. Hamilton won America. We live in Hamilton's country. You write at the very beginning of the book that um, you frame it in terms of your uh, your alma mater, Princeton. How we had two very different political philosophers matriculate from there. We had, on the one hand, James Madison, who is a sh- sort of shorthand for the, the founding vision, and then on the other hand, uh, we have Woodrow Wilson. Maybe we'll throw some booze in here in post production, <laughs> uh, who has a very different vision for America. And you you go you talk a lot about it. How it's uh, the the essence of it is using. Uh, growing government to empower experts to sort of move America in a preferred direction. And you go into a lot of the problems with that, but you open one chapter talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, an awful uh, industrial accident in mm-hmm. New York of, I think, the is the early 20th century. Yes. But what what would be, I think, the one of the like essences of the case for progressivism is to point out things like that as necessities for larger government, for more regulation. Sure. So what, what's your... What's your response to people who would make that argument? That they're right. That uh, when the shirtwaist fire occurred and those women were trapped, they were trapped because a lot of the doors were locked because the uh, owner of the shirtwaist factory thought the girls were stealing cloth. And society has a perfect interest in basic health and safety regulations uh, require the doors to stay open. No one that I know objects to that. <laughs> what they object to is regulations that are actually rent-seeking, uh, using the language and the pretense of public health and safety, but actually to confer advantages through public power on private interests. So the, another case, or another instance around the time, 1905, I think, is the Lochner case, which is now a shorthand for horrible judicial activism. I think it was about Baker's there's a mandatory regulation said they couldn't work more than 60 hours a week or something. And the court ruled that that was unconstitutional because it interferes with liberty to contract. And now it seems like everybody, or in the popular conventional wisdom, that was a horribly decided case. You have a slightly different take on it. I have a diametrically opposed (laughs) position on that that I I got from, and I want to plug someone else's book here, David Bernstein at George Mason Law School, now the Fenton and Scalia Law School wrote a wonderful book called Rehabilitating Lochner. And what he demonstrated was that this was not a public health and safety regulation. It was a regulation passed by the large and mostly unionized bakeries at their behest in order to penalize the smaller bakeries with which they competed and which, in order to compete with the larger bakeries, were not unionized and had people work longer hours. There was no evidence that the court could find that working longer hours was a threat to the workers' health or the public safety. Therefore, they concluded that this was not, uh, and by the way, the so-called Lochner Court was constantly upholding laws that were clearly uh, aimed at public health and safety, not at rent-seeking. So it's a a wonderfully decided opinion. Uh, It was opposed by 
uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who famously said, uh, the Constitution does not enact Spencer's social statics, who's a great libertarian, laissez-faire advocate. I would say the Constitution actually does pretty much um, affirm a, a free economy. Would that imply then that I think one of the reasons people think Lochner was so horribly decided is because would that then imply that minimum wage laws, for example, cannot be enacted because that would the court could then say that interferes with liberty to contract? And then when people hear that, they think, if how could it be unconstitutional to make a minimum wage? Yeah, well, I think minimum wage laws are all constitutional and all wrong, but that's another matter. <laughs> constitutional is not a synonym for wise. What the court would the court did not say the liberty of contract trumps everything. It said the liberty of contract is real, and before you abridge the liberty of contract, you ought to have a really good reason and you ought to say what it is. Therefore, for example, when the male bartenders of Michigan got a law passed that said females could not be bartenders, you could say, well, they're protecting womanhood and the family and and motherhood and all these things, or they're protecting the jobs of male bartenders. Sort it out. And uh, it's, uh, my contention is that it is part of the judicial duty to examine these laws and hold them up to the bright scrutiny of, of realism and say whether well, they are or not, which is to say I'm for overturning the rational basis test as it is now applied. Now it is now applied. Anything a government does to interfere with economic liberty is upheld as long as the people passing the law can enunciate a reason for doing it, or if they fail to do that, if the court can imagine one. This is so permissive that uh, it, it eviscerates basic economic liberties. So would you, you would consider uh, the Lochner decision an example of what you call the judicial supervision of democracy? Correct. And so you write at the end of the chapter in your book with that title that um, conservatism has no more urgent task than that of convincing the country that judicial deference often is dereliction of duty and that an energetically engaged judiciary is necessary lest, in Justice Robert Jackson's words, the lights go out. Uh, But my my main question about the judicial supervision of democracy is... uh, The way I see it is that wouldn't a country that could be successfully convinced that this is necessary not need it? And wouldn't a country that couldn't be convinced it's necessary reject it? Not necessarily. The American people pay very little attention to government, which is why they don't know that almost all of what government does is not responsive to majorities. Most of what government does is responsive to small, intense, compact, educated, confident, articulate, and well-lawyered factions. And therefore, when the court steps in and properly engaged judiciary steps in to blow the whistle and say that's that's an infringement of liberties, they're not raising a counter-majoritarian dilemma, that is, judicial review in a, in a society devoted to popular government. They're simply saying this is not what a majority wants. This is what a faction wants, and the faction is penalizing minorities, and it can't can't be allowed to stand. This is probably the most surprising chapter for me reading it because you take Justice Scalia and uh, former Judge Bork to task so much for their excessive judicial restraint. Both of which, um, both of whom, by the way, and particularly Bob Bork, were 
friends of mine. Yeah, their their ghosts are also lingering around. Yeah, they're friends of AEI yeah, too. I'm I'm aware as well. They should. They were both great men. So why did judicial activism require such a, or acquire such a horrible connotation among conservatives? And why should we not support the originalism and restraint of justices like conservatives went into full recoil against the rather freewheeling creation of new rights by the Warren Court, and. To that end, they, they adopted the language of judicial deference, which came from the progressives, and particularly the progressives' legal pinup, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who famously said, if the American people want to go to hell, I will help them. It's my job. Well, some of us don't think so. There's a parallel here. Uh, for years, conservatives looking at the way strong presidents Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, who came to Washington to be Woodrow Wilson's assistant secretary of the Navy, Lyndon Johnson, the only president to spend his entire adult life in Washington, came to Washington to work for Franklin Roosevelt. Conservatives looked at these, understood that the executive could be a great engine of the expansion of government, and believed for a long time in congressional supremacy. There canonical text was James Burnham's Congress in the American Tradition. Then, beginning at noon on January 20th, 1981, conservatives began to have the heady experience of Ronald Reagan and the joys of executive power. And they became, I think, lax in their suspicion of executive power and too relaxed about Congress's shedding of its powers. Is there anything? So yeah, you're the the section of uh, on the cult of the presidency. In 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 get, getting ready for this interview, I tried to give you try to prepare questions that you would find interesting. But here, I just have no choice but to nod along and say yes. Our cult of the presidency is terrible. Is there anything that can be done? Is, is limiting government and limiting executive power the only thing that can re- reverse that trend? Is there, or is it? Is it an inevitable consequence of the sort of convenience of having the presidency as one figure in a modern, uh, attention-starved media age? It is definitely the case that reforming the presidency and shrinking it back to something like human dimensions, getting rid of the grotesque elephantitis of the modern presidency, is made immeasurably more difficult by modern means of communication. Tweeting, in the most obvious uh, manifestation right now, but also uh, television and before television radio. Franklin Roosevelt began his first fireside chat with two words that do not appear in the transcript as it is at Hyde Park. The two words were, my friends. Now, try to imagine, just imagine George Washington addressing a group saying, my friends. There was a time, believe it or not, when Americans did not think of, did not want presidents to be their friends. They wanted them to do what the Article 2 says they're for, which is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. A formulation that subordinates Article 2 to Article 1 because they are to execute what is done by the Congress. But now we have this unleashed president who goes about feeling our pain, as uh, Bill Clinton used to say, who superintends the national psyche. Michael Jackson dies, and the president is expected wherever he is to comment on this. Why? At what point did this sacerdotal robe descend over presidents? 
It's just, it's an investing politics with a grandeur it should not have. Politics is important. Politics is noble. Politics can be life-saving, nation-saving. But in the general run of things, presidents who unfortunately are in our living room from one end of the day to the other should step back. We both came of age, I think, Jack, during the George W. Bush administration mainly. So we, I can't think of anything, I can't think of a time before people, presidents were like this. My first memory, political memory really was, or one of them, the first election I paid attention to was 2008 when John McCain prefaced everything with my friends on their campaign trail. So it just seems second nature. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why there seems to be an internal conservative spat right now, whether or not just to embrace a strong executive or to take your attack and try to fight back against it. Have you been, and this reminds me, have you been keeping up with the uh, David French, Sorab, Armani debate? And well, vaguely, vaguely. I, I, the baseball season's on, so I have <laughs> far more important things to worry about. Uh, than, that is a very virtuous sentiment. Than every, every ripple on the pond of conservative opinion. But I do gather that David French has been accused of politeness. Yes. He's been convicted of having good manners and of not being ferocious as the, their perilous times require. I don't think we're in perilous times. Uh, I mean, the, the right here is a mirror image of the delusions of the left. The left says Donald Trump is, is an incipient dictator. The guy can't even get two nominees to the Federal Reserve Board passed. Dictators take over Czechoslovakia and Poland. That's what dictators look like. The, many of the people on the uh, side of this debate that we just mentioned who are opposing David French, well, I won't say many, but some of them, I think, have mild sympathies for what in the book you would call a confessional state. And uh, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> mild. Mild, yes, for now. Um, but you, you write that we, we've sort of, the essence of the whole uh, American project is to move beyond that. But you also say that uh, libertarians need social conservatives. Uh, so on the one hand, you say libertarians need social conservatives, but on the other hand, you say um, if churches are on balance useful, that is perhaps a sufficient, reason for, a sufficient reason for them. So you see, obviously, in your argument, these are consonant sentiments. But my question is, um, how can religion be remain publicly useful if most people believe it to be untrue? Can we Probably not. Yeah. Can we sustain a noble lie if nobody, if everybody thinks it's a noble lie? Good question. A religious skeptic in, in England in the 19th century proposed carving over the portals of all the churches of England three words, important if true. <laughs> uh, religions are important. They have shaped the world. They have covered the landscape with great art and architecture. They have moved millions. They have changed history. Uh, whether or not they're true. They just are important, and they have provided enormous social capital that liberalism presupposes. That is, if you're going to be free, you'd better be equipped with the, uh, the uh, social capital, habits, mores, customs, dispositions necessary for exercising freedom wisely. As Burke said, before we congratulate people on their freedom, we should look at how they exercise it. And religions have historically been A, important, and B, beneficial on balance. Your question goes to the heart of the matter. Does there come a point at which you, a utilitarian defense of religion undermines religion? The answer is yeah, it does. It's up to the churches to convince people. Okay. I've always admired your, your, your bluntness and directness in your writing, and 
There it is in evidence. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right, we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to get to some of the other topics. One of the chapters is on education. I think you write something along the lines of you almost wish every college major could be a history major because we need to study the... When I'm dictator of America, that will be that will be my first act is to abolish every college major but history. Can you please still come on banter when you're dictator of America? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, all right, well, let me push back on that. I, so I studied political philosophy and history, two subjects I think... Near and dear Political to philosophy is a study of history in large measure. Right. So UVA counted them as two separate things. But the, uh, political philosophy, I had a teacher basically tell us, no, don't make any arguments relying on human nature. Natural rights are impossible to prove. History majors could get through with, I think, only one required class yeah. on the United States, yeah. and that could be, you know, the history of 1920s jazz. Yeah. So even what do you do when even history majors, political theory majors, aren't are not coming away necessarily with any understanding of natural law or That's the U.S. Founding? That's a good question. The, uh, I read for pleasure and fun the Chronicle of Higher Education, mm -hmm. which recently has erupted in a, a great uproar over the fact that history majors are disappearing. Wonder why that might be. <laughs> Perhaps it's because there are too many courses on <clears throat> the washerwomen of Naples. 1832 to 1841, <laughs> instead of the great themes of history and the great people of history, we have decided that to teach history with the politics left out, as Gertrude Himmelfarb once said, history without great people, because too often there were great men, and we know what an affront to, to modern sensibilities that fact is. Well, uh, you're quite right. We can't count on history being taught well. And it's arguable better not taught at all than taught by Howard Zinn. Yeah. <laughs> I understand the point. But I'm not ready to give up on higher education yet. It seems to me maybe, just maybe, some of these disaffected, adjunct, non-tenure-track professors who are writing these screeds for the Chronicle of Higher Education will sit back and say, maybe if we offered something more human— in the study of history, we'd have more history majors and hence more history jobs. Well, since you gave a plug to your alma mater, I'll give a plug to mine. Hillsdale does not have this problem. Well, Hillsdale so. is, a, is a special case. It is indeed. Um, there's our free... <laughs> thank you. You're welcome, Hillsdale, for that gratis promotion. Send checks to Matt Winesett. <laughs> so, All right. Whatever. Um, it's your podcast. A, a, few, a few other questions. So right now there's also a rethinking of economic matters. In your book, you still harp on similar themes about debt and saddling for the generations with all this just mm -hmm. entitlement spending. But it seems like there's a rethinking going on that because we haven't seen the spiraling inflation that some predicted in the Great Recession, that maybe deficit spending is not as bad as people once thought. Have you considered that at all? Well, yes, it's been codified now in <clears throat> magical thinking on the left called modern monetary theory, which is that if you have fiat money, which we all, all countries now have, that is cut off from gold standard or other commodity, you can print as much as you need, which is all very well until scarcity, the basic fact of human existence, reasserts itself. They say it need never happen. Mm -hmm. I say the following. Just wait until the cost of public borrowing goes back to something like the post-war norm of, say, 5%. At which point, do the arithmetic. On a $20 trillion national debt, 5% 5 a year rolling over that debt becomes about a trillion dollars, $4 trillion. I don't know what it is. We're all history majors it's, here. Right? <laughs> right. It's big. And the debt itself becomes the driver of the debt. Uh, I don't believe in magical thinking. I don't believe in a world without scarcity. 
and I don't believe that printing presses can be run without consequence ever. Uh, so while we're talking about capitalism, uh, whose who's cultural contradictions do you think are more dangerous, capitalism's or the welfare states? They're similar. Uh, the cultural contradiction of capitalism is a phrase from Daniel Bell, who was himself a man of the left and a brilliant sociologist at Harvard. He said, the cultural contradiction of capitalism is that capitalism works. It enriches us. It creates wealth. Wealth creates indolence. Wealth creates untempered appetites. Uh, wealth subverts the deferral of gratification on which capitalism depends. That's the contradiction. The contradiction of the welfare state is that it normalizes and destigmatizes dependency. It makes people comfortable with being wards of the state, and it gives them an investment in expanding the government, an investment in diverting all government resources toward transfer payments. How are they doing? 67% of the federal budget today is transfer payments. The sky over America is dark with checks flying back and forth. I love the idea that the Republicans who voted for all of this are going to go to the country saying, eek, socialism has reared its ugly head. Well, what, if, what is socialism other than the regulation of business and the distribution of income? That's what it is nowadays. No one thinks we have to nationalize the commanding heights of the economy. So when they try to make a distinction, these Republicans, after they've reauthorized the Export-Import Bank, then they turn around and say Bernie Sanders is a Leninist menace. It's going to be hilarious to hear them try and defend themselves as anti-socialists. So Matt may get mad at me here for, for trying to execute what I think might be the last question, but it seems like a good place to ask it. You started out this podcast uh, expressing your hope that someday... Uh, some conservative or Republican leader slams your book down on a table and says, this is what we believe. But as you just uh, described for us, we're, we're pretty far from that state right now. Mm. Uh, so does that, does that depress you? Does that make you uh, sort of um, pessimistic about the long-term success of what you outline in this book? No, I think this book is probably the most important event in publishing since Gutenberg invented movable <laughs> type. And I think books, uh, I, I know all the new media, they're out there, but I think the old media called the book can matter. And I think ideas have consequences. More important, I think the absence of ideas has consequences. And I think there's an absence of fundamental ideas uh, in Washington right now. And the way to change that is to not curse the darkness, it's to light a candle. And that's my candle. Well, Jack, I won't get mad at you because I have one more <clears throat> secret final question. Oh. You recently spoke at Princeton, and we saw videos of some students protesting you. What did you make to them protesting, and what is what would you tell Not that they're listening to this podcast, but if they <laughs> you were. You know that. I, I highly doubt they were. If they were, what would you tell them? I knew this was coming. Mm. One of the deans had called me and said, oh, we hate to tell you this, and I texted back. I said, this is not my first rodeo. <laughs> I've had backs turned on me before. I've been disinvited from colleges. No offense, but you seem a little unob unobjectionable. I'm so I'm, I am surprised that they're... Well, I wrote a column on the Title IX stuff, the rape culture stuff, in which I said, among other things, I said that the uh, study on which the... Uh, the online study on, on which the statistic was based that uh, one in five women on a four-year college experience will be sexually assaulted was spurious. Mm -hmm. I said that a woman can say no before sex. She can say no during sex. She can't say no six weeks later. Oops, come to think about it, I was assaulted. 
all that stuff. And I said that, that victim had become a coveted status on American campuses, all of which these people found offensive, which yeah. is uh, fine with me. Mm-hmm. And you would tell them now if they were listening? I'd say, um, turn around and face me and let's argue. All right. Seems like a good place to end it. Mr. Will, thank you for coming on Banter. I enjoyed it. Thank you all for listening. As a reminder, if you like this podcast, please like, rate, interview, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever else podcasts are found. Jack, while I have you here, what do you usually say in your outro for The Remnant? Uh, I say, you, usually Jonah says, uh, do you not listen to The Remnant? I used to. I, I would listen every now and then. Uh, I, there's a lot of podcasts out there. You don't listen. Uh, do you listen to banter? I doubt it. Uh, I've listened to one or two episodes. Yeah. But yeah, so on The Remnant, uh, Jonah usually says, see you next time. And I, in my annoyingly literal way, say, no, you won't. This is a podcast. And I said that offhandedly once, but now... As the way catchphrases go, it I, it has become just I'm obligated to say it. I think that's actually the reason I stopped listening. I couldn't take it anymore. Just your your incessant comments at the end. The two and a half second. Oh no, you mean the whole part where they just where Jonah and I were just talking? No, no, no. Just the um, no. You want this is a podcast? It drove me insane. No, you want this is a podcast? No, you want this is a podcast? Yeah, yeah. No, you want this is a podcast? All right. Uh, and good news, <laughs> Max will be back from France. <laughs> we he'll probably be a full blown socialist by then. But but we have a French accent by then too. Is that all? That's all it takes, right? A week? Doubtful. I, he's not studying abroad, so he's not going to come back with the whole like I've been. My eyes have been opened. I'm now French. So. My eyes have been opened. <laughs> I'm now French. <sighs> <laughs> all right, I think that's enough here. Uh, we'll see you all next time. You just can't. Uh, no, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>